Cockford, I manage the University of Sheffield's widening participation research and evaluation unit and I've done that for eight years so I've kind of seen quite a lot of policy changes across the time. Started off mainly focusing on kind of outreach issues, we've moved into issues around student success and student progression. I was really chuffed to be asked to, to kind of do this talk and then having looked around the room, uh, the accumulated weight of academic and practical experience has suddenly made me really scared. So um, what I think I'm able to do is just sum up a bunch of stuff from my own experience, which will hopefully resonate, but resonate, resonate with everyone, but I don't think I'll be telling you things that you don't already know. Um, so to start off, um, I've got a quote from uh, Marion Bowl talking about how any sort of government worth its salt would want to acknowledge the importance of equality and, and fair access to HE. And then, despite myself, I've included a Coldplay quote, uh, which is, no, no one ever said it was going to be easy, no one said it was going to be this hard. And it reminded me of um, a story around Harrison Ford, when he was given the script for Star Wars, and he said to George Lucas, oh, you can type this stuff, um, but you sure as hell can't say it. And it occurred to me that's quite similar to policy formation in that you can write whatever you want in policies, but when it comes to policy enactment, it's often a much harder situation. And I think that the reflections that I'm going to talk about now uh, are kind of um, born out of me sitting in rooms with various managers saying, can't do that, that's not going to work, that's too hard. And it's this kind of sense of, of being trapped in a policy framework that doesn't bear any relation to what we know reality is. Um, and uh, I kind of, as a side strand, I'm quite interested in, in the role of evaluation in, in widening participation uh, policy. I'm doing a, a doctorate on that topic. Um, and as I've been thinking about this, I've sort of come to see the, the kind of, the, there's a tension in policy discourses between talking about disadvantaged students and talking about underrepresented students. And it seemed to me that was quite a good way to sort of tease apart some of the tensions I was seeing. So basically, I'm just going to moan for the next sort of 20 minutes or so. Um, well, in terms of the policy context, I don't really need to talk through this. It's uh, Robin's principle, uh, um, access to students who are qualified and get benefit. The theory, some uh, 97, kind of pushed the, the first big wave of WP expansion and activities. Obviously, we've moved to a, a, an elite system of HE. Um, I think in my kind of research, what I'm kind of interested in is the way that po uh, widening participation appears in HE policy at times when there's funding changes. So you've got the creation of offering in 2006, when the fees troubled to, to £3,000. And then again, we've got the kind of all the things that happened in 2012 as fees were troubled again. And within that, we've got a kind of uh, country uh, or a tension between broad widening participation uh, discourses and ideas versus this idea of fair access which tends to be concentrated at the upper end of a stratified system and it's about the brightest kids accessing the best universities and there is a very un 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 um, uncomfortable sort of pull between those two aspects. Um, so in terms of who are we talking about when we're talking about widening participation as I mentioned I've sort of as I've been reading through the policy I see a kind of slippage um, between talking about underrepresentation, so the first kind of offer guidance in sort of 2006 was mainly focused on underrepresented students. By the time we get to 2014 with a national strategy uh, by Hefty and Offer, um, we, we are talking explicitly around disadvantage. And then in the latest guidance in the OFS, we're back to underrepresentation. And of course, the two the two terms which can be used synonymously. Um, 
are interrelated and there is a, a kind of relationship between disadvantage leading to underrepresentation, underrepresentation which leads to disadvantage. But it's never really clearly articulated in policy. And it seems to me that uh, as a kind of coal-faced practitioner, that tension is actually really important to what we try and do. Um, so the first kind of set of whinges will be mainly around um, data issues. Uh, if you get any WP people or admissions people in the room, we'll always talk about data. So I thought I'd get it out of the way first. Um, so the, the first thing is obviously defining underrepresentation. Um, and the thing that might, you know, keep on bear of this is that we are in an environment in which data determinism is a clear and present danger, and probably is, is actually the, the circumstances. So that we're only really concerned with the things we can measure. And in terms of wide anticipation, uh, the OFS and HESA focus on the, the measurables. So we're talking about age, gender, disability, ethnicity. We've got a state school measure, uh, which is obviously very blunt given the high proportion of students from state schools. Increasingly, we're, we're thinking about care experienced students, uh, which is kind of harder, harder to measure. It's not in the statutory data sets. And then we've got socioeconomic status, and I've kind of highlighted that one because I'm going to go and talk about some of the issues or bugbears around the area as well. Um, and increasingly, we're, we're seeing a move towards multiple uh, indicators disadvantage. So UCAS introduced their MEM um, measure uh, two or three years ago, which combined different sets of measures to, to kind of predict outcomes. He sort of have kind of uh, introduced their experimental performance indicators, which are an attempt to kind of compensate for the, the, the limitations of the individual data sets. Um, in terms of class, um, we always used to, well, since about uh, 2001, I think, we, we talked in terms of the national statistical socioeconomic classification data. Um, it's a useful measure because it should, in theory, uh, address both underrepresentation. we can measure the, the respective um, progression of, of students from different classes um, and it should in, uh, well it, it does address disadvantage as well and uh, in, in my kind of reading today the kind of there, there's a lot more work done to kind of develop causal or explanatory theories about why class is associated with underrepresentation and disadvantage in HE so I, I don't even need to introduce the the, the works there it's a, a huge body of work whether it's around cult, cultural capital sense of fit uh, pedagogic issues and so on. So social class makes sense because there's a lot of reasons why we should be interested in it in the sense of HE progression. Um, the trouble is from a, a kind of a policy or practical um, perspective we're dependent on proxy measures. Um, the uh, socioeconomic classification was a kind of the, the foundation of, of HE policy and practice strategy for quite a long time, but we began to become aware of the, the flaws. So it was um, derived, I think, from the um, students when they applied to university through UCAS, put their parental occupation. Um, there was a kind of automatic process by which UCAS classified them against the national statistical framework. Um, and, you know, uh, I'm not quite sure how that worked, it's some kind of computer magic, but there was a kind of attempt to match people's par parents' occupations with a classification. In 2009, Harrison and Hatt looked at the large proportion of students who were unclassified or who were erroneously classified. And they suggested that, in fact, a lot of the students who are unclassified or not recognised in the classification are actually students from, from lower socioeconomic classes, families with uh, long-term uh, unemployment and so on. So, th so the measure was actually excluding the very people that we should have been focusing on. 
And in fact, TISA stopped reporting NSEC from 2017. And that left us as a sector without any kind of standardised class measure, which is a real problem when that's kind of what we're trying to focus on. So to get around um, the, the lack of a, a class profile, HESA developed the, uh, don't ask me what the acronym stands for, because I've, I've got it's gone from my head, um, the polar measure, which is a measure of um, low participation neighbourhoods. So it takes uh, middle super output areas, sort of population around 7,200 people on average, and looks at the rate of progression of young people into HE. Uh, last year, um, the OFS introduced a Tundra measure, which was based on the same kind of postcode analysis, but looks at the proportion of students achieving um, Key Stage 4 measures and who, who progressed into HE. Um, and this, this was kind of presented as a, as a, a really good way, as a, a useful proxy to identify disadvantage in the sense you're focusing on areas where there wasn't uh, a high proportion of, of students going to HE. So we've got the five quintiles, quintile one, lowest, quintile five, the highest rate of progression. Um, Neil Harrison and Colin McCaig uh, looked, uh, published a paper on um, Polar in 2015, uh, which was really useful in, in terms of exposing the ecological fallacy. Uh, and one of the key things was that we were used to looking at uh, postcode regions uh, and assuming that they're almost assuming that that was a concentration of disadvantaged students. And in fact, what they found was that there are actually more disadvantaged students outside of the lowest quintile than there were within it. And obviously the risk is there that, A, you're targeting uh, more advantaged students within those regions, or worse, that you're missing disadvantaged students who might be living in areas where there's a relatively high rate of, of progression. Another kind of, uh, I guess, another whinge around uh, polar, particularly if you're uh, a London-based institution, is the London polar problem. And out of 600 wards in London, only 13 are, are polar quintile one, which is a problem if the regulator is asking you to reduce the, the ratio between polar one quintile and polar five quintile. Um, you've got nowhere to go. What that means is the disadvantage that's in London is spread around a whole range of different quintiles. So in effect, in London, Polar is not really fit for purpose in terms of identifying disadvantage. Um, so in terms of um, thinking about other ways of um, addressing sort of class and, and, and class disadvantage and underrepresentation in HE, that's a, a strong move towards looking at eligibility for free school meals in the compulsory sector. I've included one of Sonia's papers, Stephen Gorod's work as well, which suggests that it's probably the most reliable indicator we have in the statutory data sets for disadvantage. So it does, it does indicate social disadvantage, unemployment, um, low income, but it does miss some students. So not every student will be classes eligible for free school meals or will, will claim them. Um, in our group discussion we have now, we were talking about first generation, um, which is a self-declared measure, and it kind of, I guess, rests on the assumption that students from a family without a history of HE progression will have a, a kind of, uh, will not have the cultural capital or advice and guidance benefits of, of students from um, families with a history of HE progression. Um, and that's a, I guess that would be a very loose proxy for class. Um, in terms of thinking about the students we have got, once students register, apply for funding, we do get access to the household income, which seems to be one of the most robust sort of measures for socio-economic disadvantage, because that's what it, it is. Um, but we do know, and, and I know Rita's done a lot of work on this, there's, um, uh, uh, A, there's a kind of uh, suggestion that 
clever middle class families might use clever accountancy to look like they fall into particular categories to kind of play the game. Um, we miss out students, uh, uh, we miss out families who have multiple students going through the HE system. There's not really a recognition of the costs of, of kind of lots of siblings going through HE. And I think that one of the, the kind of the most uh, kind of scary factors that, that Rita found in her work was that entitlement or, or household income is assessed on an annual basis and it can change. Students can slide in and out of a kind of a disadvantaged group according to their family situation, parents becoming unemployed, getting a windfall and, and so on. So although it's a potentially useful way of thinking about socioeconomic circumstance, it's not necessarily as reliable as we'd want. So uh, my, I guess my biggest bugbear, you know, back to talking about kind of data, is that we're, we're kind of in a, a kind of a, a data-driven tautology in that we often, we're, we get really into the data, we crunch it in different ways, we split it into different, way, different sort of sections and we can have very precise granular, granular analysis of students and their situations. But what we don't have often to the same level of detail is a causal or explanatory rationale for why that data set's important. Um, and I, I've kind of thought of that in terms of a, a kind of policy reification, which means that the data indicators that we have got, which are quite often convenience measures, become widening participation rather than being seen as proxies for what we're really interested in. And Harrison and McKay sum that up really well when they're talking about polar in a, in a way that I think applies to most of our WP indicators. In the, when they say the sector's inadvertently adopted an approach whereby people living in an LPN have themselves become the underrepresented group rather than LPMs being a proxy for more real forms of social, economic or cultural disadvantage in terms of progression to HE. And what that effectively means is that, I guess, from a policy frame, from an institutional strategy <coughs> or, or practice uh, perspective, disadvantage and its impacts are framed off. The, the, mark the marker and the data becomes the thing in itself. Um, another kind of data issue that, that we're kind of seeing is this kind of tension between homogeneity and sort of disaggregation. And we've seen this particularly now with the OFS being a data-led regulator. They made a really interesting data set available to everyone through the APP dashboards. And if you've not had a play around with that, I, I strongly recommend it because it's really interesting. Um, but the OFS work at a high national level. They've set national key performance indicators around access, retention and success. And those uh, KPIs, as is you know, completely appropriate, are simply expressed we want to reduce the gap between low participation neighbourhoods, quintile one five. We've got a retention gap for the same group. We've got an attainment gap between uh, black and white students. And we've got an attainment gap, or should I say an awarding gap, um, between disabled and non-disabled students. So that's a, a kind of nice, clear articulation of a set of uh, policy imperatives at a high level. Um, the problem is that while you, you know, national, large national data sets look stable when you analyse them, once you disaggregate, in this case, if you disaggregate uh, particular populations at an institutional level, all of a sudden your data gets really wobbly. Um, and what's, this is kind of particularly important because going through the access and participation plan process, um, institutions were required to set individual targets for an institution. I was involved in some of those discussions and you're presented with data like that and you've got a kind of set a five-year planning and I think what most I, mean, I don't know I'm, I'm guessing but I guess what a lot of institutions might have done is looked at the last data point and then added five percent on or whatever so when you haven't got when you haven't got a clear kind of trajectory as you have with the national data set it becomes really difficult to set meaningful targets and um, 
OFS very helpfully put the confidence intervals as well. So you can see the kind of potential range of um, variation in that data. Um, this is um, white students versus other ethnicities. Um, it gets, you know, once you start looking at individual ethnicities, so white versus black, um, students in terms of uh, awarding outcomes, um, you get even more variation, sort of like 13 points across a number of years. Um, with a, a you know a not necessarily a clear trend, so while data uh, high level data is a really useful policy tool, when it comes to on the ground implementation of, of how you respond in terms of practice, it actually becomes a lot less helpful when you want to disaggregate it and think about it. Um, and I, I'm kind of thinking about that particularly in terms of students with uh, disabled students, students with disabilities, in the fact that disability is obviously a very heterogeneous group. Um, even within the HESA codes, you've got nine different disability types, which range from physical or mobility issues through to specific learning difficulties, which, you know, makes sense from an administra administrative way. You can convenience group different students together to, to create a, a data profile. Um, but that kind of convenience doesn't make sense if you're thinking about how to respond to the issues that those codes reflect. And I'm sort of thinking about the HESA code 50, which is um, students indicating whether they have a specific learning difficulty such as dyslexia, dyspraxia or ADHD. Um, if you're attempting to address uh, um, attainment, uh, awarding outcomes or progression into your institution, each of those subcategories will require very different adaptations to support those students. So it makes no sense. If you're, if you're an institution trying to lever up an overall metric, you've got no clear steer for what you actually need to do to make that happen. Okay, so um, just thinking about recruitment issues. Um, uh, the kind of, I guess the, the kind of the biggest, kind of most obvious tension we've got in the sector at the moment, if you want me to think about OFS, OFS regulation with its national performance indicators, is that we've got very high level uh, um, data gaps to close, but implementation happens at a local level. And each institution is required to develop its own institution-specific targets and to close gaps within their, their institution. In some senses, this, this can encourage what um, Liz Thomas referred to as a bums-on-seats approach, which is just, just get those relevant students into your institution and hit those markers. Um, but in terms of outreach, that can also um, hit right at the heart of a tension between the local nature of outreach and what it does and the student experience. And I was thinking about this in terms of the delivery of outreach within sort of HEI specific outreach has to be delivered to a degree in a local environment. You've got travel time for staff or you've got travel time for students if they come into your institution. So you can only, you can only really work with a limited pool of students, particularly for campus-based activities. And the tension is, of course, that sometimes we sell the full student experience, which involves moving away. And I was thinking about uh, Mike Donnelly and Saul Gramsci's work in terms of looking at how student mobility is itself uh, correlated with disadvantage. So disadvantaged students will tend to remain local, um, more advantaged students will tend to, to travel further, which would tend to be what we, we kind of maybe try and sell to students. So you are working with students to convince them about, you know, engaging with the full student experience whilst at the same time encouraging local students to come to your institution so you can hit your targets. Um, 
which sort of it seems to be a tension. And of course, what that does it, when you look at uh, HE as a stratified system is it concentrates disadvantage in particular institutions. If you're from a city with two, you know, a, a kind of Russell Group and a, a 92 institution, the 92 institution will be the concentration of disadvantaged students. So local students will be attracted to one institution and not the other. So you've got a kind of disparity within the stratified system as well. And in terms of uh, the, the, the kind of the nature of the HE system, um, uh, Colin McKagan, Nick Adnett, uh, and Aaron Boland and Jonathan Hughes talked about underrepresentation and, and tried to problematise that. We can talk about underrepresentation within the HE sector as a whole, but as I mentioned, we're in a highly stratified system and we've got concentrations of particular forms of representation at different points. So disadvantaged students tend to be concentrated in institutions lower down the stratified system, um, whereas the more advantaged students tend to concentrate in the institutions at the top of the hierarchy. And what that's resulted in is a, is a kind of uh, a situation where there's heavy lifting institutions. The, uni the universities that do the, the kind of the bulk of the social mobility work tend to be the lower tariff institutions which have much better rates of um, wide anticipation. Um, ironically, they're also the institutions which will have less money to support those students because they've got a higher rate of, of economically disadvantaged students. They have been uh, told to invest less money in WP, so OFA or offer as was, suggested that universities with low rates of WP students needed to invest more money in addressing the gap. Institutions that were already doing WP needed to invest less of their money, um, which meant there was less money available for financial support for disadvantaged students in WP universities. So the systems created a kind of a, an irony there. Um, there was some, a really interesting uh, report by Waken and Savage in 2015 where they looked at the uh, BBC census data, class census data, uh, and they showed how the kind of cultural profile of universities remained stubborn over years. So they looked at which institutions people who liked opera went into and so on. And they found that over years, each institution retained its cultural identity. And again, that's got implications if you're trying to broaden your, uh, your access and encourage a, a wider range of students coming in because those students are going to hit the cultural habitus of your institution and develop a sense of fit or not. So it's, it's a very stubborn issue to try and um, change the, the, the kind of the, the population of a, an institution. Um, just in terms of thinking about how um, universities might implement um, the, the kind of widening participation responsibilities um, or requirements, um, I'm quoting again from the first set of our offer guidance which again is, for the purpose of access agreement, outreach work means any activity that involves raising aspirations and attainment and encouraging students from underrepresented groups to apply to HE. I'm not going to pick up on the aspiration element, that's obviously, you know, uh, old news. Um, but the implications are that universities need to target these underrepresented groups and for the most part that will involve, when you're working with young people, not, not so immature students, involves working through schools. And I think what we're seeing is... Uh, once you, you kind of um, position schools as your conduit to the students you reach, you've introduced a number of biases in terms of who you actually get to engage with. So there's a self-selection bias. Um, the WP students who you might engage with through outreach who self-select will be motivated in particular ways. They might have a kind of, a, they might know the ropes, they might know to engage. The school themselves might select particular students. They've got their own performativity pressures. 
progress eight measures and so on. So they will be wanting to encourage certain students to um, engage with HE to improve their HE progression statistics and so on. So the, the net result is that targeting through schools means that we're actually, if you're using the aspiration and uh, encouragement to go, go to HE argument, you're actually already working with those young people anyway. You're working with the students who want to go into HE. So in fact, outreach, it, as it's kind of being conducted at the moment, is, is effectively doing something else. And the kind of flip side of that is that we see the danger that WP outreach becomes nothing more than a specialised recruitment activity. So you've got white, um, universities fighting over local, clever WP students. I'm, I'm doing the, the kite marks there. Just <laughs> um, uh, so they're, they're fighting over a limited pool of WP students, which means A, they're not um, addressing the, the kind of the harder to reach students, but also there's, there's competition for a limited pool and you're not changing social mobility as a whole. In terms of uh, what it means for an institution to do WP, uh, I, I'm not going to talk about financial support. You know, I know Rita's done a, a lot of this work as well. But in terms of the access side, there's very little evidence that because of the complexity of the decision-making process and uncertainty about entitlement, that financial support really has had that much impact on encouraging disadvantaged students into HE uh, or individual HEs. Um, We've got a move towards thinking about um, contextual data in the admission system, and I know the RFS have just recently uh, engaged in this again. And we, having been involved in university admissions for a long time, the idea of the kind of whole PQA debate coming up again is it's really fun to see because I've been, been there a couple of times. Um, but uh, there is a sense that the current admission system is, is unfair. Um, we need we need to attend to young people's educational circumstances to contextualise their attainment. Um, there is a, obviously a, a kind of clear relationship between um, performance in the compulsory educa education education se se uh, the compulsory education sector and um, student outcomes. So it does seem like a logical way to approach that. The counter pressure for universities is the measure in lead tables that measures the average grade. So um, I mean, I've, I've tried. I've spoken to a number of universities to try and work out if you can kind of almost game the systems and see how much you can lower your, your kind of grade point before it impacts on your, your lead table position. Uh, no one's been able to work it out. So if anyone's got an answer to that, then that would be ace. Um, and then the other kind of mechanism by which universities uh, do WP is, is via outreach. We've got kind of a typology of activities that happen, campus visits, master classes, summer schools, and, and so on. Which brings me on to my favourite topic, probably, which is evaluation. Um, the sector, uh, there's a, a lot of policy pressure, government pressure, to evaluate what works in terms of widening participation. And at the moment, uh, I guess, uh, in, uh, across the sector, we're still stuck between a, a kind of fairly polarised set of positions. We've got the kind of the what works agenda, which is... Um, uh, very popular with policymakers <coughs> and government because it, it should result in a nice, clean, simple narrative about what's happening. It enables you to think about value for money. Um, it, uh, there's an emphasis on robust evaluation, which normally involves trial-based designs. It provides evidence <coughs> of an impact of the activity. And I guess the counter-pressure would be a kind of why it works 
uh, move, which is uh, kind of suggesting that, in fact, we're working in a complex social reality. Um, we're talking about, you know, we can only produce complex narratives. We can't give easy answers to stuff. We can just suggest what happens. It's much more attentive to the context of different students, different disciplines, different uh, institutions. And, and what we can get out of those kind of narratives is a sort of generalizability. So we can get a sense that something, if something works, we might understand which parts of it work and which parts of it we might be able to apply to our own context. Um, if anyone wants to talk more about this stuff, just grab me at any point because I'll talk you off because it's fascinating. Um, so just to wrap up, um, just uh, to bring us up to date to think about the, the, the impact of the, uh, the OFSs um, position uh, as our, our current regulator and um, they are very you know uh, there was a, an early blog which we talked about their pride in being a data-driven regulator got Michael Barber as the, the kind of the, the head of the office of students as the inventor of deliverology that kind of new labor model of managing the public sector by setting targets and you kind of set a delivery chain up everyone sets targets and then responsibility for actually hitting those targets gets delegated right down to people at the coalface who are then left with the challenge of actually working out how the hell to do it. And I think this kind of model is, is, is kind of completely what we're seeing. And that emphasis on targets and proxy measures indicators is a, a kind of policy reification when it becomes an end in itself. And the only people that are really concerned about what happens on the ground are the people doing it, I might suggest. Um, the other, uh, one of the other kind of the new aspects that's come in with the off-regulation regime is a focus on eliminating gaps. So in particular, we've got the, the trying to reduce the gap access or a retention gap between Polar Quintile 1 and Polar Quintile 5, which is, is brilliant from a policy perspective because you've got a nice, simple, clean measure. Um, but of course, what you do when you set a binary measures you frame out the complexities. And I'm always intrigued to think about what happens to disadvantaged young people in Quintile 2 who quite often aren't addressed by targeted outreach. Um, there's a shift to, to outcomes from outputs, which, you know, there was a kind of a tendency for organisations to report how much they were spending on activities, and quite rightly, the Office for Students is saying it's the results that count. Um, the problem is that that emphasis on outcomes can also um, shift attention away from how we achieve them. So there's a kind of a lack of interest in what we need to do to do them. It's just, don't care how you do it, just hit these measures. Um, but, in the, you know, I do have to sort of uh, give the Office for Students uh, a lot of credit for also within their evaluation and uh, evidence um, strand, actually encouraging uh, a kind of theory-driven approach to evaluation. So they're, they're kind of been pushing a theory of change model. They've got the, the kind of standards of evidence, um, which encourage, uh, they're the kind of very baseline. They ask all organisations with an access and participation plan to provide a narrative around how, why, how, and why what they do works, which I think is a really positive step to actually having to engage with the nuts and bolts the mechanisms of what we do. So, in conclusion, um, uh, I guess my kind of main grump with uh, um, my position in, in, a, in an institution is um, that we're seeing the kind of policy concerned with social mobility and social equality being painted with a very broad strokes approach, um, which makes it really nice and clean for policymakers. It makes it quite nice and clean for uh, strategic managers in organisations to set a clear direction to provide a narrative about the you know the university is doing stuff, but 
inevitably invokes a series of contradictions and tensions, and those are shoved down the kind of delivery line until it gets to, to the people that have to respond to them and resolve them. And we know the complexities, but it's really hard to push up and get those mm. kind of acknowledged. Uh, I came across um, Boron Wright's discussion of wicked problems, which is, you know, problems for which there are no easy solutions. <coughs> yeah, that sounds familiar. Um, so all of us are working on these wicked problems, and yet the, the kind of policy framework and pressures don't allow us to express or acknowledge those complexities. Um, so we are seeing, obviously, you know, increases in progression rates. We're, we're hitting that 50% uh, target that Blair set um, back in the 90s. Um, but we're, we're not closing the gap between the, the most and least disadvantaged students if you use polar as a measure. Um, so uh, the, the kind of, um, and I, I felt that this kind of slippage uh, and the, the kind of temptation to use underrepresentation and disadvantage kind of symptomizes this, this kind of tension in that underrepresentation is going to be popular with policymakers because it's data, it's measurable, it gives you something to aim at. But unless we do talk about disadvantage, which is a much more complex, messy issue, which involves causal knowledge, it involves structural factors, it involves mechanisms to address it, then we, we may not make as much progress. So I'd, I'd kind of, I guess it's a, a shout out for disadvantage. Um, I just uh, I just thought I'd talk, talk about, well, point to all the things that I didn't have time to talk about. Um, <laughs> I, I, when Rita said, oh, you've got half an hour, I thought, okay, that's quite a long time. And then, then you kind of just been throwing stuff out there. All, loads and loads of interesting work that's being done or needs to be done. So...